Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Rugby World Magazine's One Game at a Time. This episode we speak to former Wallabies and Brumbies tighthead Ben Alexander. We go back to the Rugby World Cup quarter-final of 2011 and witness an unflinching and typically bruising encounter with the Springboks. It was great to hear Ben enthuse about being in the front row and how rugby has given him such a positive outlook on life. He identifies a fair amount of loss in his career but also recognises how all of his experiences have made him a better person. His internet wasn't the best and it took a lot of clever editing but it is a truly wonderful listen. At one point we talk about the tragic circumstances of Dan Vickerman's suicide. Ben talks very honestly about how it felt at the time and the sense of loss is palpable. Mental health issues are very important and this episode highlights how important it is to talk to one another. If you ever need to speak to someone, you can by picking up the phone and calling 116 123 24 hours a day. And if you're worried about someone you care about, ask if they're okay. Listen to what they have to say and if needs be, encourage them to get the help they need by visiting the Mental Health Matters website www.mhm.org.uk Rugby is the best team sport in the world. Let's make sure we are looking after everyone. This is One Game at a Time. Ben Alexander. Well, good evening, but I think it's very early morning for you. Hello, Ben. How are you? Morning, Sam. Morning. Thanks for having me, mate. Very good to have you on here. Uh, Delighted to have you on here. Not only I was after a prop forward, I was also after an Australian. You've killed two birds with one stone. It's absolutely delightful to have you on Rugby World Magazine's One Game at a Time. The premise of this podcast is that we speak to one player about one game from their career. When I was talking to you about this and, and asking you to choose a game, you came back quite quickly with the game from the 2011 World Cup. Why was that? It's not Well, it's probably the only game in my career that I wonder how on earth we won. <laughs> so I'd like to go back and watch some clips of it and then hopefully I'll be able to piece together and figure out how we actually won that game. So just got a lot of fond memories of that day. I mean, that was my only World Cup and... Um, you know, we had a tough pool match and lost against Ireland, and that was pretty hard. And we lost, obviously, ended up bowing out to New Zealand, you know, the All Blacks at Eden Park in the World Cup semi. But um, yeah, that that final obviously that is the highlight. So yeah, keen to keen to watch some footage. You've had a pretty incredible career. Uh, you, you are the most capped Brumby in, in Super Rugby. You've played over 150 times in a, a 10-year career. Uh, and yet you've operated in, in, in possibly one of the most physically demanding positions on the field. Do you know how you did what you did for so long? How I did it? I don't know. Like, I don't know. I just, I played rugby since I was, what, since I was 12. And I just played every week and every season because I love the game so much. You know, it's so much fun. And um, I never really had to, you know, battle through or struggle through to get through training or games just because I loved it. And it's just the funnest game to play. But physically, did you did you ever feel as though you needed to, to to look after yourself in particular ways, or was there a little bit of luck to it? Did you feel as though you looked around the changing room and thought, oh, I, I I tend you know not to have endured some of the injuries I see around the place? I mean, my body's pretty. I got out of rugby pretty um, unscathed. You know, I've got a little little bit of nerve damage, but nothing that's going to prevent me from living a healthy, happy life and what prevent me from being a dad. But I mean, I guess I look at um, a guy like a good friend like Rob Horn, um, you know, and then what happened to him, you know, I'm just yeah, very grateful that my body, yeah, it's a little bit sore in parts, but got out in one piece and, and very, very grateful. A lot of sleeping during there, a lot of eating, 
that was probably the two main things that got me through and just uh, but yeah it was yeah it was definitely a challenge physically playing in the front row you had a a wonderful australian based career but i have a little book on on my shelf uh, it's called the 125 years of, of bedford blues now if if i turn to uh, page 336 there is a team photo from 2006 2007 where you're all lined up, your chests are all pumped out. And now the stats attached to this uh, photo say that you played 23 times for Bedford that season, but also listed in this team is a certain player called Dan Cole. He played 10, 22 times. I think you were a loose head at the time. He was a tight head. What an incredible starting out of your careers on the same patch of grass at Goldington Road. Yeah, you knew, yeah, packing scrums against him at training. I was like, well, this guy's... You know, he was on loan from Leicester and obviously in England under-19s and you were like, this guy is this guy's going places. And then it was nice to every time you know, we'd play against England, him and I'd always have a beer after the game together and um, even caught up, yeah, when he was out uh, with the Lions in 2013. We, we sort of yeah, caught up. He was, I think he had his parents with him as well and very fond memories. I mean, Tom Youngs was another guy, uh, Youngsy, in that Lions series that him and I um, you know, played quite a bit of footy together, except he was in the centres back then before he moved to hooker. So, yeah, a lot of fond memories from that Bedford team. Uh, you played at places like Waterloo, Otley, Cornish Pirates, Birmingham, Solihull. I mean, that, that those that's quite an apprenticeship, isn't it? Yeah, no, I love the, um, the Cornish Pirates away trip coming back uh, on the, I don't know what the freeway was, but drinking Red Stripe. Uh, singing John Denver on the team bus for an eight-hour trip or however long it took us to get back. Uh, there's some, yeah, the memories that I'll never forget. Playing poker um, up the back of the bus with Carl Dixon and uh, cleaning him out of all his, his uh, salary. That was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And I talk about uh, propping in general, because as I say, you're, you're the first prop we, we've had on, on one game at a time. I mean, it's a position which perhaps has, has undergone the biggest transition, perhaps in, in the professional era. You know, previously... They were often the slowest, sort of least fit, least mobile on the pitch because of all the work they had to do in the scrum. And now you look at an international game or a top flight game, it, it, it's props are asked to break down, to maul, to backline, to, to, to make a break and then scrum again when the, one of the centres drops it. I mean, you, you boys have to do it all nowadays, don't you? Yeah, we do. And I guess the game, um, as they're going to try and keep speeding it up to improve it as a spectacle, and especially... Um, there's a lot of clashes between the North and South, especially here in, in, in Australia. There's huge demand for the game to be sped up. Less stoppages, less clap scrums, all that stuff. So that does put a huge workload on, on props and, and on the engine room to, you know, if there is a break in play, obviously that's the type five's job to get the play going, whether it be a scrum or a line-out. So, yeah, there's a big workload, but it, it's good fun trying to get through it. What makes a tight head... Uh, a tight head what it is about what is it about your game your your physicality that makes a, a scrum coach go right you on the right hand side because as we mentioned a little bit earlier you, you weren't always a tight head no I mean I grew up playing second row um, and then as I started growing wider and as I stopped growing taller I got my one of my school coaches put me in the front row and I always played loose head and then um uh, Robbie Deans was the one to try and fit me and Ben Robinson into the same team said well I better you give, give tight head a go. Um, I always sort of preferred loose head, but I was just happy to get picked in the team. So I was happy to play wherever and um, tight head's bloody tough. It is a tough position. I guess you just got the weight of the opposition scrum coming at you and 
it's intense and it, but it was yeah very enjoyable i mean there's nothing better than playing tight end in the scrum going forward but on the flip side there's nothing worse than playing tight end in the scrum going backwards what's the hardest thing about playing in the front row oh just when you go backwards it really really sucks it really sucks but again that's the best part about it, it's when you go forward it, it's it's pretty much that simple you know like um, yeah, if you go forward, it's great. But if you go back, it sucks. And I think that applies to sort of anything in life, any sort of anything you put effort into, if you make progress and, you know, whether it's trying to get faster or lose weight or business or work, if you put effort in and you go forward, it's awesome. But if you put effort in and you go backwards, it really sucks. So um, and I think scrummaging is just a sort of perfect metaphor for that or, or an analogy. Let's set the scene uh, for this World Cup quarterfinal that we're going to look at. Australia had had Ireland, USA, Russia and Italy in their group. Uh, you'd put healthy scores on USA, Russia and Italy, but but you'd been beaten by Ireland. Sexton and O'Gara's boot had, had done the business over you. What was the feeling in the camp heading into the, the group stages? How, how were you feeling? We were sort of seen as maybe the one team to really challenge New Zealand at that World Cup. We'd beaten them earlier in the year. We'd beaten them the year before. So we were sort of really public enemy number one coming into that tournament. Um, and then, yeah, losing to Ireland in that pool stage, I think even though we played in downtown Auckland, it felt like we were in Dublin. The whole stadium was in green cheering for Ireland. Um, and we had opened the tournament really well against Italy. But, uh, yeah, to come undone against Ireland, which then would knock us on to New Zealand and South Africa's side of the knockout draw, um, certainly narrowed our focus to just we've got to win the quarterfinal. You know, there was no thoughts of going on to win the thing or make the final. It was, let's, we've got to narrow our focus. I think our room with Pat McCabe leading that, that whole week, um, him, he'd, I think he ended up getting a shoulder reconstruction after the World Cup. So he'd hurt himself maybe, I think, a couple of weeks prior against the USA. So, um, and I had a really bad back. So we were just in our hotel room all week, eating lots of painkillers and watching Seinfeld just, between that and the training field, getting ready for the game and very, very nervous going into that game. Let's have a look at these uh, these two teams. I, I, I will go through them for uh, uh, for the for the people listening at home. Let's look at South Africa first. Uh, 15 and fullback, uh, Patrick Lammy. Uh, 14 and right wing, JP Peterson. 13 and outside centre, Jacques Ferry. 12 and inside centre, Jean de Villiers. And a left wing, Brian Habana. Halfbacks, Mornay Stain and Furi de Prier for, uh, for South Africa. The front row, Guthro Steenkamp. John Smith and Yeni Duplessis. Uh, second row, Danny Rousseau and Victor Matfield. And the back row for, for South Africa, Heinrich Brousseau, Skulk Berger and Pierre Spees. That, that's a pretty formidable South Africa side. As you mentioned there, they were the current and reigning world champions. Who had you spoken about in the week leading up to the game? Who'd been written on your whiteboard? Um, I can't remember. <laughs> but I remember, like, obviously, that's... Probably going in that World Cup, that was probably the biggest forward pack. Um, and you just knew, I mean, obviously, Victor Matfield um, being the line-out general. I'm, I'm, think, I'm pretty sure we, uh, we, whenever you played against Springbok, you really had to do homework at line-out time. You know, he, he was obviously man of the match in the 2007 World Cup final against England when he, you know, he dominated at line-out time. So I remember that being a big focus of ours going into that game because winning the territory battle, obviously, there's the kicking part, but then there's also the line-out part of that. Uh, if you can dominate the line-out, you can definitely dominate territory. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of emphasis at, uh, from from a forward point of view around physicality, meeting their physicality as a big forward pack and, and being really clinical at line-out time. 
It's a pretty strong front row from your point of view as well. Scrums were, set piece is always important, but it, it was going to be ever so important uh, against South Africa. Yeah, massively, massively. And all knockout. I mean, super rugby, um, you know, set piece can sort of fall, well, not, not, not be as important. It's always important, but at test match footy and especially at a lip, do or die test, you're living by the set piece. Let's have a look at the uh, Australia team as well. Uh, 15 and fullback, Kirtley Beale. 14 and, and right wing, James O'Connor. Uh, he would kick at goal, as we'll see. Adam Ashley, Cooper and Pat McCabe, uh, as you mentioned uh, previously in the centres. Digby Ioni on the left wing. Quade Cooper and Will Genia at halfback. The front row, Sekupi Kepu uh, at loose head. Stephen Moore and uh, yourself, Ben Alexander at tight head. Uh, Dan Vickerman and James Horwell were in the second row. Rocky Elsom, David Pocock and Radiki Samo. As I read those names, I well, it almost makes me incredibly excited to be watching this match again. There were some absolute superstars in that game. But I am going to concentrate on, on one of those names. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour, if you don't mind. That of, that of Dan Vickerman. Um, he, he is no longer with us. Dan took his own life in February of 2017. I know that must have been uh, incredibly difficult for everyone. Can you briefly talk about how you know, what happened and the circumstances of his passing, how, how that perhaps affected you uh, as, as, as somebody who played with him? I mean, I didn't play heaps with, with Vix, um, but him and I did really, I did really bond with him almost more than most guys in that, during that World Cup, mainly through a, an injury we both suffered, uh, a similar injury. Yeah, we both had snapped our legs in half. I did mine sort of seven or eight years earlier before I came to Bedford. And he'd done it a few years before this World Cup. Uh, and I remember him asking me a lot about um, having the metal pole inside his leg. And, you know, we really sort of bonded away from the field. Uh, not just, I mean, at set piece time, we had to do a lot of work together. But off the field, you know, him and I, um, I'd sort of really looked up to him. Um, and, yeah, to, to hear of his passing, that was, I mean... Yeah, it was super tough. I mean, and I don't think suicide's talked enough about these days. You know, now we've got the coronavirus and uh, cancer is obviously big killers in society. But, I mean, for me, suicide's killed the most people that I know. Uh, and, yeah, it, it had, like, it's, it, along with, I've already mentioned Rob Horn's injury, Vix's death is definitely something that really shook me. Um, I saw him at my at the pub at the dock, you know, maybe three or four months before he committed suicide. And um, I guess looking back, once I heard he'd, he'd committed suicide, maybe there were some signs and could I have said something to him then or asked how he was going or done something differently that might have helped? I don't know. But um, no, we really miss him. And I hope his passing is, is a lesson. Or we can, you know, all athletes can, can look to... Um, Vix's struggles and maybe hopefully uh, learn some lessons so we don't other people don't have to repeat and go through what he did. Uh, for this podcast I've, I've spoken to players who are currently playing, I've spoken to players who are uh, coming towards the end of their career and I've spoken to, to players who've made the transition. I think everyone is aware of coming away from the game but I don't think anyone is taking that step lightly or recognising that it is anything other than a, a, a tough challenge to, to not play rugby anymore. How, how much of a challenge was it for you? And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but, but whilst we're on the subject, just that, that process of coming away from, from this sport after so long? 
I'd given it thought, a lot of thought um, before I retired. Um, I retired pretty quickly, like I'd planned to play a little bit longer, but um, some circumstances sort of all happened and it just made sense to retire when I did. But uh, I'd thought long and hard about what I'd miss most when I, when I would retire and um, put a lot of things in place before I retired. But I guess the hardest thing when people retire is finding something that, you know, you enjoy doing for a job as much as you did playing rugby. You know, playing rugby for your country is the, is the best job. And to try and find something that is as enjoyable and as fulfilling and as challenging as that is a really tough, really tough task for any player that retires. But I guess personally for me, I'd, I'd found something I, I was enjoying working on uh, on my days off and it's led me to my studies now in computing. And I, and I feel drawn towards that in the same way I felt drawn towards my rugby uh, before I was a professional. I just felt, you know, when I was just playing as an amateur, I felt drawn to train more and to try and get better. And, you know, cause I love the game and, and I feel sort of that same gravitational pull towards computing and trying to build some pro a few projects I've been working on. So I feel very grateful and lucky that I've found something I enjoy as much as I did with my rugby. Um, but it is, it's a massive, massive challenge for anyone retiring. And um, I'm not sure how Vic's, what, I can't remember what he did for work when he retired, but um, I just, yeah, I can't stop thinking about uh, what and how he must have been feeling in, in the months and days and weeks leading up to his suicide and just the, how, how he must have been thinking to think that, um, you know, we'd all be better off if he took his life. I just... Yeah, it's it's really hard to think about. Well, let's turn to the rugby. Um, I, I think um, you know that that's that's a good option here. Let's um, yeah. let's look at let's Sorry look at <laughs> no no no. It's you know it's difficult, isn't it? Because actually, it could be a whole discussion on its own, and 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 probably deserves to be a whole discussion on its own. It needs to be multiple discussions, and it's such an important discussion. Um, and, 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 it, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it, and we, I thought about it on the weekend because the Brumbies and the Waratahs just played for the Dan Vickerman cup. Yeah. And obviously as a, you know, obviously I keep still watch all, all the mighty Brumbies, uh, matches. And I remember, yeah, when they're presenting the trophy at the end, just, yeah, was think, been thinking a little bit about that in the past week. Um, but yeah, sorry. No, don't, 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 don't apologize. Uh, let, let's go to the game, uh, and and I've got the these two clips. One of the first half, and one of the second half. It's it's the full game, but we're going to sort of uh, pick the best bits and and, and stop in at, at various uh, sort of places al along the route. Uh, the first thing I'm going to pick out is is at four minutes and, and forty seconds on the on the first clip, and it's actually the national anthem. And I just want to talk about pre-game and 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 how you use the national anthem and and what it did for you. Oh, just tremendous pride. Like, I don't specifically remember singing the anthem for this game, but I guess there's one or two moments in the lead-up to this game that I won't forget, and one was um, leaving the hotel to hop on the bus to go to the ground, and I remember walking out of... I can't remember what the hotel we were staying at, but I remember leaving the lobby to hop on the bus, and you know, we were mobbed, tons of fans out there and I remember just looking spotting my parents and just the look of pride and excitement in my parents eyes that um you know maybe they were like that before every game but I and I just never saw them but just to see how excited they were and how proud you could see the pride in their eyes my son was about to go out for an elimination match 
for their kids. So that that moment stands out. Um, yeah, that that's really what stands out for me in the lead up to that match. Did you have any um, superstitions? Did you did you have any ways of of doing things before a game? How were you? Were you you sound quite a laid back chap. Were, were you were you were you quite relaxed in the lead up to a game, or did you get nervous? No, I got very nervous, very nervous. And I think one thing I'd sort of learnt early in my career, or a habit I'd formed. Uh, or was more routine was the night before to go to the movies and see a movie. That was something sort of Sterling Mortlock and George Smith and Adam Ashley Cooper at the Brumbies. I'd sort of in my first year just followed them the night before we go out and see a movie and just just to try and get away from a big game. Um, but I don't think I went out to the movies the night before this. But Pat McCabe and I, I'd set up like a little cinema in our. I brought a projector on tour and we'd set set up a sort of a cinema in our room. And I remember watching movies and Seinfeld the night before just as a way to just sort of forget about the game for the night and sort of just relax. And because it is, you know, being in a World Cup, it's just so consuming. You know, you step outside the hotel and it's, you know, everyone's just talking about the World Cup. So to be able to go into your room and just escape it for a little while uh, was awesome. So that, that was the only sort of routine was try and go see a movie the night we're going to uh, skip forward uh, to eight minutes and, and around about sort of 40 seconds. Uh, and it's actually, I think, the first scrum of the game. And I, I told you this uh, chat was going to be a little bit of a, a scrum noise session. H how important is the first scrum uh, of a contest like this and, and getting yourself into it? You can see the huge hit there from Australia. I mean, setting the tone in anything is, a, is, is super important. You know, first tackle, first scrum, first line out. If you start well, you know, you get momentum well and it just sort of flows into the game. And I think you see we scrum well, um, got good quick ball, Willie's able to get a decent kick away and now we've got the pressure on South Africa. So uh, we had, we'd gotten, uh, we hadn't scrummed well, especially against Ireland. We'd scrum well against Italy. That was sort of the one game, our pool match, where we thought we'd, it was going to be a massive scrum battle against, you know, Castro Giovanni and the Italians. Um, we'd scrummed well that game, but um, Ireland had, had got us in quite a few scrums. So we knew South Africa was going to come at us. But um, yeah, to start start that first scrum got us off on the right foot. I'm going to skip forward to 17 minutes and 35 and line out and then a passage of play, which leads to a good kick, good field position. Line out claimed by South Africa. Dupree into the midfield. Some big tackles coming in and, and Jean de Villiers doing some devilish work he was he was a good player wasn't he Ben? oh he was he was and they sent a lot of traffic down that channel down paddy mccabe's channel i think it was pretty well known that he'd you know he'd busted his shoulder against um against the usa so they knew all right let's send big bodies down a busted center's channel and um i know jean got a bit of front football there but i think that's about the only tackle paddy missed for that game because the rest of the time Paddy sat everyone on their ass, and that was it's probably the bravest performance I've ever seen from anyone was how Pat McCabe played that day and little turnover there from Jean de Villiers, which obviously in big games it's all about yeah controlling momentum controlling the ball and our right foot but yeah we got a little bit of a let off there you could already see in the, in the clips we've watched just how hard and fast it was I mean South Africa are pretty famous for that. Did it feel like that out there? Did, did you feel, even with sort of 20 minutes on the clock, this was going to be a tough physical afternoon? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We knew, um, yeah, whenever you play South Africa, they're always, I mean, because they're bigger. And we, we back our fitness and we back ourselves to be able to outrun them and get them if the game was close. But um, 
we really placed a big emphasis on starting well. So to get that try early and actually have a lead on them uh, was massively important because the Springboks, they're a side that want to come out, be physical early, build a lead and then just control the game. Whereas, you know, we really knew we needed to come out firing, score first, build a lead. And um, But, yeah, this is probably the one time they, yeah, they just wouldn't go away and they just kept... Uh, I mean, yeah, looking for seeing some clips from that second half. But they, um, yeah, traditionally they want to get out of the blocks fast. So you need to sort of counter that. Uh, well, you did score a good score from, from James Hallwell. Uh, we, we're going to um, we're going to just have a look at um, a sort of a, a clip here, uh, which is a kind of microcosm of the game. I'm at 30 minutes and, and 51 seconds. Uh, and you hold this scrum, it starts with a scrum, you hold it well, but then a couple of South Africa surges to the line and then they end up turning the ball over and then there's two sort of really poor kicks from both sides. And as I say, it kind of sets the tone for, for the game. Just just have a, have a look at this and, and talk us through what you're trying to do here. The, the scrum is, is just engaging now and the, you just about resist it and then Pierre Spees takes off. Let me guess, David Pocock turns this, steals this one, does he? It was, yeah. It's David Pocock with the turnover. That When you're in attack and you're attacking the opposition's line and you turn it over, it's, it, it really is a bit of a, a big blow. And, and, it, and on the inverse, if you're a defensive side and you manage to steal the ball or force a turnover when you're under that much pressure, um, so what happens here? Who makes that tackle? Pat McCabe. Yeah, great tackle from Pat McCabe. So I guess... Um, Poey's only able to come into the game and try and steal the ball if if the tackler is able to chop their big guy and get him on the ground. Once the once the ball carrier is on the ground, that's when David Pocock would come into the game. So um, great tackle from Paddy there. Uh, but then yeah, Poey just I mean this is you know the guy had so many unbelievable games, but I really think this was the best game he ever played, and um, that's just one instance of many where he got us out of a, a big pot of trouble. I mean, let's let's talk about that that back row. You had Rocky Elsom, uh, David uh, Pocock as well, and, and Radiki Samu as well. You know, guys that would that would go toe-to-toe with whoever, however big the opposition were. You, you must have felt very, very confident in their abilities, you know, over the ball and, and in, in, in the collisions. Yeah, and I think, like, with Rocky and, and Radiki, I mean, the best game I... I mean, in Europe, everyone saw Rocky at his best playing for Leinster. And uh, for Brumbies, the best game he played, I think, was his first. And we played uh, the Bulls in Pretoria, which contains pretty much all this forward pack. And Rocky was unbelievable. So you knew Rock could go toe-to-toe with any of these guys. And obviously, big Radiki. Haven't um, haven't shown, but he absolutely flattens a few blokes. I think he absolutely irons out Brian Habana early in the first half. Uh, so those two, having those two guys, their physicality uh, in the back row was a big part of being able to, able to physically compete with, with such a big forward pack. And it's important in a way to sort of, you know, those names would have been names that you would have been looking for as a team to sort of get that physical imprint. Because you talk about how physical South Africa are, you've kind of got to get your retaliation in first, haven't you? It's an old rugby phrase, but it's so important in these big matches. And we always talked when you play South Africa, we talked about bullying the bullies. Um, that they were, you know, they like to bully sides physically, uh, but bullies don't like it when people stand up to them. And so that was sort of a big mindset whenever you play South Africa was to try and was to bully the bullies and really go after them physically because um, that sort of seemed to work. Because if they got a 
sniff and they thought they had you for clear, they could they'd probably run away run away with it and run all over you. We're gonna skip into the second half because so much of this game is is almost about the the stand that, that Australia make in the second half. And there's there's a lot to sort of discuss here. We're actually going to skip to the second clip, the second YouTube clip on, on the uh, on the podcast trail. Uh, and, and actually sort of 20 minutes and, and 30 seconds of this of this second clip. And it's it's about 20 minutes into the second half. Australia lead eight points to six. Uh, and it is a, a passage of play which leads to the drop goal from Mornay Stain. It, it's another line out. Um, talk us through potentially what, what might go wrong here. Well, there we go. Victor Matfield steals the line out. So that um, we sort of spoke about that pregame being a, a potential, well, a, yeah, whenever you play Victor, that's a massive obstacle is to try and dominate the line out. Um, good tackle from Sharpie off the bench there. Your, your man, Guthrow Steenkamp, making a little bit of a challenge as well. And then uh, Fourier Dupree turns you. And the ball, uh, I think, yeah, is... I mean, there are some huge collisions going on here. I'm not sure some of them are legal nowadays. I mean, that was playing against Free Dupree. I mean, in my opinion, he's the best halfback that's ever played the game. Like, just as a general, his kicking game and game awareness was just second to none. And the, and the Springboks... I mean, I don't know what the stats are of when he played in the Springboks team versus when he didn't. But when he was there, they were just always a much better side. He always put them in the right spots. And I think he was a big part of why they won the 2007 World Cup was obviously free to praise, uh, just game awareness and, um, yeah, just ability to read the game. So And Mornay staying back in the pocket there and that drop goal was a, was a serious weapon. Uh, it must have been spoken about trying to close that down. Yeah, I mean, I think you just got to go back through the history of Rugby World Cups and there's a lot of famous drop goals. And I mean, there's Yanni De Beers drop goals against England. And in, in big games, you just got to come away with points, no matter whether they're tries, conversions, penalties or drop goals. And um, Mornay was a very dangerous kicker, very accurate kicker. So Indeed. Let's, uh, let's skip on 28 minutes and, and 47 is, uh, is where I'm looking. Uh, and it's a passenger play that, again, shows the tenacity of Australia and incredible and eventually the incredible skills of David Pocock again. South Africa just about get through on the outside and it's a scramble defence. Big tackles going in there from everyone, yourself included. Yeah, they just kept coming. It just That's all I remember that game is just having to make tackle after tackle because it just cause they weren't able to score, but they just kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. How does how did Pocock do that? How does he do that? Well, I mean, a lot of it, he's got low centre of gravity. The guy trains very hard in the gym, so he's just got unbelievable strength, flexibility. Um, and that that is one of the best turnovers you'll ever see. I think he got one in the 2015 World Cup final that you just wonder how on earth did he do it. But again, South Africa reacted well. I'm not sure who charged Willie's kick down there, but they... You can see a lot of guys blowing a gale at the moment, a lot of hands on heads, hands on hips. And everyone, all my friends and family said they've watched that game. They said this was just awful to watch. It was just so tense and so stressful. But being out there, it just, yeah, it's, I don't know, just so much was happening. And all, yeah, I just still don't know how Poe did that. It's an absolute freak of nature. Talk about taking a scrum underneath the posts. I mean, there's pressure on every scrum, but you, you must have felt it here and they put a real squeeze on you. Yeah, no, they did. I mean, we still managed to clear it. But um, in these games, every single moment, whether it's a carry or a scrum or a line out or a, trying to catch the ball, a high ball, it's a contest. And that's the great thing about rugby is it's just contest after contest after contest. And you may think every ruck, here we go, here's another contest. 
Um, Bismarck trying to charge down James O'Connor, another contest. Patrick Lammy again with the with the drop goal there, but uh, I suppose really w- what you're getting at is that is that is the fact that it, it comes at you from every single angle, and it's very difficult to sort of put that across unless you're out there and you and you're in the midst of it. You're just in this fight after fight after fight, and it just um, I mean I think yeah, looking back at hindsight when they're starting to go for drop goals, it sort of gives you a bit of a boost makes you think, oh, they're starting to doubt whether they can cross our line. Uh, so that was a bit of a boost. But in saying that, you know, they were in the lead. So we still we knew we needed to get down that end somehow. And then once we got down there, somehow we had to get points. I don't know if you're going to show it. There's a moment, I don't know when it was in the second half, that they got done for a forward pass. And I missed John de Villiers. I was a bit slow in the kick chase line and they probably would have gone and scored. And I just remember thinking for most of the second half or for a little while, thinking, oh, I might have got away. Like We might have got lucky with that one. I mean, um, I don't know if you're going to play it and I don't know when it was. I, I, I wasn't, mainly because of what you say, uh, but I, I, I was actually going to touch on it and, and, and we can talk about it rather because there was a, a couple of different uh situations throughout the game Bryce Lawrence made a few very brave ultimately correct decisions on two or three forward passes in the game which may not have been called in 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 other games if you see what I mean did did you did you sense that at the time did you think oh did you did you feel that there was a little bit of a a rub of the green if you like oh I didn't you don't know at the time when you're playing um because I didn't know if that pass was forward or not I just sort of thought oh geez lucky that's forward because John was he was outside me there. I mean, obviously as a centre, he's probably yeah. I'd back him in a running race against me any day. But, uh, <laughs> so I didn't know at the time that you're getting the rub of the green. But obviously in the, the aftermath that uh, Bryce copped after that that this match, um, there was a lot of chat around. We'd had Bryce against Ireland in the pool match, and apparently you know it got in the media that apparently the Australian Rugby CEO John O'Neill had you know, filed a complaint against Bryce and how he'd refed the game. Uh, so I, you don't know whether subconsciously Bryce made calls that favoured us. You'll never know. I mean, refereeing a rugby match, a high-pressure rugby match, is freaking impossible, like absolutely impossible. And how, you know, these refs, uh, it's a, a pretty thankless job. I mean, it's really sad that Bryce, the fallout from this match drove Bryce out of refereeing, more or less. I don't think he ever refed another match again because he was a very good referee and yeah you don't know at the time you're getting rubber the green especially with forward passes because you don't know if it was forward or not but just really sad to see Bryce get bashed in the media and social media after this and there was all sorts of threats made against him and it's just that's just not what rugby is about and of course people can be frustrated about results of games but Bryce was out there trying to do his best and um, as we all were and, and that's all you can ever ask for. We're going to actually just look at the last sort of two and a half, three minutes of, 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 of the game as it stands. As I mentioned before, O'Connor's boot had, had just uh, given you a, a little bit of a, a nose in front. Uh, and then we, we're going to watch and sort of let it play out. And, and you can see the bench enthused there. It, it starts with another scrum. And let's just sort of talk through and, and, and notice what happens in these last few moments and how this game is sort of managed out. Um, some, some, some big men stepping up and, and doing the job for the... For the men in gold. Yeah, I remember we had a lot of scrums and we were just trying to keep like, uh, you don't want to go too much into your shell and, and wind wind up the clock. Uh, you want to, We always wanted to try and keep playing at them, keep trying to put pressure on them rather than just chew the clock up. 
uh, without making mistakes, obviously. But um, yeah, so someone's ball is turned over now, and and then there's a little bit of a scramble. It's just the tiniest mistake in these big has such big consequences. Um, but we always felt pretty good indeed, you know, that we that we had them covered. And 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 a Bismarck Duplessis had come on at at, at, at replacement hooker, and I I think he made a, a a big impact in this game, and and was was really tough to stop. I think we're going to see a run from him here. Oh, and that was a big dilemma for the Springboks was how they tried to fit him and John Smith in the same team. You know, many of the tests in the years leading up to this game, you know, they put John Smith at prop, and then to try and fit both of them in the starting team, but. To have yeah, a guy of his calibre uh, come off the bench, um, it was it was tough tough to deal with as an opposition player. I mean, the Wallabies were lucky to have a very similar sort of scenario at the 2015 World Cup, where Stephen Moore would start, and then um, we'd bring on Wallabies would bring on you know the damaging Tatafu Plot and now off the bench to cause a bit of havoc with some tired bodies. So um, yeah, Bismarck was yeah obviously incredibly damaging player in his day. A little knock-on there from South Africa. I think it may have even been Victor Matfield with the, the crucial knock-on and, and the clock ticks around to, 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 to 80. There is still one more <laughs> scrum to go. And you can see yourself in picture there. It almost looks as though, as though you're walking off, but you've still got one more bit of work to do. Can you remember this? Can you remember what, what was being said? You can see David Pocock shouting information there. Yeah, I just remember we've got to get this scrum done because you, know, you give away a penalty... Morneau Stain will kick this. So um, we've been scrubbing pretty well. So we felt confident. We're just, just focused on trying to get the job done, really. Um, they got us there on the. And it, it's reset, I think. There's even more drama. <laughs> yeah, and you know, super young James Slipper out there doing really well. Obviously, Slips is one of the few players still playing. Yeah, doing his best. I mean, reset scrum. Eighty minutes on the clock. It must be absolutely agonising. Ball eventually just about makes its way back. South Africa is swarming, and Will Genia kicks it out. <laughs> Talk us through your feelings there. Relief, like unbelievable relief. Like, um, but it didn't last long. You know, there wasn't a lot of savouring the moment. You know, we knocked out the reigning champs and in an unbelievable match and. I definitely enjoy looking back on this game more now than at the time because at the time it was, yeah, we very quickly had to move our focus to what was to come the following week. I do have a fond memory of going, Pat McCabe and I went to get McDonald's after the game uh, just to go treat ourselves to a little feed. And I do remember running into Sean O'Brien uh, and his brother at the McDonald's. I don't know if Sean will ever remember this because I think Ireland had um, I think they lost to Wales maybe the week before, or the night before. So he was probably... The out. night before, yeah. He'd been out celebrating and I remember bumping into him and having a really good yarn with Sean. That was the first time I'd met him and he'd had a terrific tournament and he'd, he'd played really well against us in the pool stage. And um, that's what I remember after that night, just having a you know, just a little chat with him at the Maccas. You, you mentioned there you secured a semi-final spot against the hosts and eventual champions, New Zealand, which was always going to be tricky at Eden Park. Any regrets on that game briefly or, or were you beaten by the better side that day? No, beaten by the better side well and truly. Uh, there's no no regrets for that one. They came out firing. I mean, that's not, I haven't really watched that game. I just remember the start, the first sort of 20 minutes of that game was just so unbelievably fast and they were just trying from side to side. And then the second half, they turned the screws and, um, yeah, the better team won. Absolutely fair and square. And, um, 
and to do it with all the injuries they had at fly half and then to, I mean yeah you just got to take your hat off to them and then to Richie McCaw and and that forward pack that we faced sweet that was the best forward pack I ever faced by a long way um, that 2011 All Blacks forward pack was was something special your career continued. I know I'm going to break my own rules here about talking about a different game or a different series, but I do, I do want to talk to you about it. I, I, I read one of your recent blog posts about, about the Lions tour in 2013. Incredible to be involved in, in a Lions tour, obviously. Uh, it, it is, you know, alongside with World Cups for, you know, sort of uh, Antipodean players, or the South Africa, the Australia, the New Zealand. It is something that I know that, that every player down there wants to do wants to be involved with um bittersweet obviously for you can, can you talk about uh, your feelings now looking back on that 2013 tour it was just such a unbelievable series to be a part of you know i'd watched the 2001 series and that was probably one of the best live series ever while it, while it came back uh to win that in a cliffhanger in the third test uh, and then to be obviously a part of the series, I never thought I'd ever be a part of a Lions series. So to one be a part of it was just unbelievable. Um, rugby sort of really struggling in Australia, and it was you know, AFL and rugby league are the, are the most watched codes by quite some way. But when the Lions series was on, it just the whole whole country um, were wondering who are all these mad Europeans in red jumpers flooding all our pubs, and it really put rugby on the map. So to be a part of it was was super special. First test. Incredibly close. Um, we just lost on the bell. Then I played my 50th in the second test, which we just won on the bell. So those, you know, really had set itself up for this decider. And, you know, obviously having watched the decider in 2001, uh, I grew up in Sydney. So it was really set up to be a special night um, and was really, really super excited about the battle. But then, yeah, for it to all go so pear shaped, you know, Lions score off the kickoff. Um, I'm been 20 minutes into the game uh, and to be blown away as a team in, in the second half, really just, I mean, as a sports, I mean, I know no one died and, and it's just a game, but in, as far as a sporting context or a career context, it was devastating. Like really, really um, took me a very long time to get over because I'd put so much effort in. It had been built up to be this big, huge occasion and, and to not even come close in that decider to, was just a really hard bit to swallow because the first two games had been awesome and had been so close and so hard fought. And to be blown away in that decider was just was just really, really uh, tough. Some people would say that you learn more from a loss. Did you, did you learn uh, more about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I did, definitely. Um, I was really lucky that we went, I went back to Brumbies and we were still in the playoff hunts. So we still had a few more, one more game to go. We lost that to the force, which meant we had a bit of a tougher patch through the finals. Um, we'd won our quarterfinal and then we had to play uh, the Bulls in Pretoria in, a, in an elimination semifinal, which no team had ever won there before in a, in a knockout match. And somehow we managed to win. You know, we got a late try. Uh, and, that, and that's probably one of my fondest Brumbies memory match, and that happens. So yeah, very lucky that that happened sort of two or three weeks after that Lions game. That you know, one of my least favourite memories was you know followed by one of my favourites, and then you know and to get to that, um, we got to the final in New Zealand, and with ten minutes to go, we were in the lead, looking like we're, the Brumbies are going to will be the first team to win an away grand final in New Zealand. 
Uh, and then to have the Chiefs score two late tries and uh, in the last 10 minutes to knock us off our perch again, that was just another almighty kick in the guts. Um, to lose a Lions series and then a Super Rugby final the way we did it inside of a month, very, very humbling. But I, I, I guess I've learned the lesson that no matter what I do in my personal career, I probably can't embarrass myself more or be more disappointed than, than how that sort of... That, that chapter of my rugby career panned out. And uh, I think, I, yeah, a lot of less about myself, but I think it has put me in good stead going forward for what's next in life. In 2016, uh, your world turns upside down when twin girls are, are born. Uh, prematurely, they need a, a lot of care, but like their parents, they're, they're tough cookies. You spend a decade stoking rugby's furnaces, but this is where the hard work starts, isn't it? Being a dad to now three little girls. Oh, absolutely. Yes, we had, an- we had another daughter sort of 18 months later, little Anna, and she's probably a bit more of a handful than the twins put together. But <laughs> we had a pretty furious few years, yeah, three under 18 months. But we're starting to come out the other side now. You know, the kids all can... Well, most of well, the twins can dress themselves and they got four or five days a week of school. And so I was starting to get my life back. But on the twins, I guess I'm not religious, but there was something. My goal after those, the Lions series and the Brumbies grand final loss was, you know, I set my mind and we'll win the 2015 Rugby World Cup. And I missed out on selection, um, you know, leading up to that World Cup, didn't get picked. And the Brumbies went on, I mean, the Wallabies went on to have an unbelievable tournament. Uh, And the week of the final, before they played uh, New Zealand, it was on the Tuesday, was the day I found out I was having twins. So I guess there was a little, a nice little, um, I don't know, a funny way how the universe can sort of even things up a bit. But yeah, it was another really disappointing sort of week of my career to not be a part of that final or the preparation in that World Cup. But to find out I was going to have twins, which is, Something I joke, I'd love to have twins today because we'd never had in the family. And to find out that week, um, yeah, it's a nice little way of the universe evening up. I was going to say, I think it's uh, pretty fitting that um, a man who, uh, you know, spent his, his rugby career facing a trio is now facing a trio every single morning. I think that, I think that works quite nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think... Um, they're, they're redheads, so I've, I've packed against a few redhead props. So one of them, the girls, looks like Stephen King off the Stormers and Springboks props. So <laughs> I sort of look at Anna and I get flashbacks, or like, oh, flashbacks of scrumming against Stephen Kitts off. So I, re- I reckon she could probably tie you up in knots. Good, and she does regularly. <laughs> oh, good. Um, 2018, uh, you decide formally to uh, to retire. That's nearly two years ago. Uh, you mentioned other ventures. You sound as though you're a man who has got a, a lot going on, a lot sorted. Do, do you have any pangs to get back out in the paddock? I'm going to play a couple of games for my local, just my local club side, the Uni North Sows. And I think well, when I moved to Canberra, I, did, I came uh, long before I made the Brumbies. I was just playing for my local club side. And we were the laughing stocks of the Canberra comp. Uni Norths would come last, would get beaten by 50, 60 points every week. Um, but it just in the last sort of two or three years, the Owls have somehow turned it around and we're actually now one of the, well, one of the competition threats this year. And we just fell short of the grand final last year. And um, while coronavirus is throwing sort of everything up in the air with, them, with you know, the 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 competition schedule and all that. 
I do want to just see if I can chip in somewhere and play some sort of role and uh, seeing if we can get the Owls over the line and, and help the club win its first premiership in 30 years. So that's, there's no single part of me that wants to be playing professionally anymore, but the game is so much fun to play, uh, not just because of the actual game itself, but the people involved in rugby. Uh, and rugby's going through a really tough patch in Australia uh, at the moment. And I think, Robbie Dean's, you know, I had a good chat with him about, he said one of the real big strengths in New Zealand is that a lot of the players give back to the game. Uh, and, I, and I just thought, how can I give back to the game uh, that's given me so much? And I think trying to uh, help my local my local club win a title can be my way of giving back to the game. So um, it's only going to be a short season and I'm only going to probably play the last few, few games to just off the bench and just but just try and chip in where I can. What's the best bit? I ask this question of, of most of my guests, but and they often always give a very similar answer. But but what's what's the best thing about about rugby union for you? It's the people, the people. It just we're a different breed, uh, rugby union fans. Especially, I mean, it's without a doubt the people that you can. I think the world people argue a lot now and. The world's becoming, especially in politics, is becoming more uh, divided and polarised. And I think you see in rugby how hard people go at it on the field trying to belt the living shit out of each other. But the way, no matter how much of an argument or Barney or fisty cuff you have with someone on the field, when you step off it, your friends and, and, and the respect people have for one another, uh, even if you come from different backgrounds or different upbringings or have different opinions, I think that's one of the great things about rugby and the people in the game is, is just the respect people show one another. Yeah, that would, that would be my favourite thing about the game. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, an utter pleasure to speak to you, sir. It's been so interesting hearing about your, your life in the front row at the very top of the sport. And uh, we wish you all the very best, Rugby World magazine, especially, and everyone listening to the podcast, no doubt will uh, we'll keep a, a small eye on, uh, on the goings-on down under. And, and we wish you and, and Australian Rugby all the very best. Uh, ben Alexander, thank you very much for giving us your one game at a time. My pleasure, and apologies for my internet connection. <laughs>